So here we are, what is probably going to be the end of my coverage of the MCU, but this was requested by my biggest supporter by a huge margin, so I immediately said sure, and then I looked at how many films are in Phase 3, and then I freaked out a little bit. I will say, by the way, we are not covering Far From Home, the Spider-Man film in this. For those of you who have already asked me about this, I've already gotten several questions. Um... But that's because it doesn't really fit in this bundle. I mean, it's next, but that's like the bridge between Phase 3 and what's coming next. Maybe an epilogue, but it's not part of Phase 3. Or, to be more accurately, it's not a part of the Infinity Saga, which terminates with Endgame. And yes, I did discuss this with the person in question. So, Winter Soldier Part 2. Where do I begin? There's only really two behind-the-scenes things to actually discuss when it comes to this film. Because, well... <sighs> Phase 1 had an unprecedented amount of support, mostly because the formula was proven with Iron Man 1. I've talked about that. Phase 2 had constant issues and struggles because of the Marvel Creative Committee. Now, to be 100% clear, they're not universally bad. And they have done some good things with regards to Marvel in general and the MCU in specific. But we could point to just about every major issue with regards to Phase 2 directly to that committee. Now, in the interests of fairness, most of that's actually on one man, Perlmutter, who, if you ever look him up, feel free to do so sometime. Let's just say, in summary, the man started his career by being a penny pincher. As in, rather than improving the quality of the product or approaching things with a better managerial perspective or trying for a larger scale things, what he would do is he would reduce costs in order to increase sales. And that was his big strategy. Basically, his only strategy, actually. Now, it worked for him, if you could call that working for him, and he made plenty of money and destroyed a lot of things in his path. He ended up kind of stumbling into Marvel because of Toy Biz. It's a whole story. You can look into it if you want to. But the long and the short of it is, he is considered singularly the biggest problem with the MCU Phase 2. And there are many people who are like, yeah, we're out. We're not deal doing this anymore. And then something I'm about to tell you happened. And then all basically all of those people are like, yeah, sure, we'll come back. Now, there's only so much you can do about that, right? I mean, he's the boss. He's the CEO. So it's like... Yep, okay, the boss says to do this, we're just going to have to do this. But thankfully, he's not actually the boss. And this is actually just the strangest thing, because I'm about to tell you how Disney rescued the MCU. I'm not even kidding about that. See, they were making this film. Now, the people down below, including you know Kevin Feige, were looking at this film like, okay, so we want to follow through on Winter Soldier 2, but we need to bring in... Uh, these, this character, this character, this character, this character. And as they started shopping around, they're like, you know what, this is kind of going to be an Avengers film, considering how many people were involved. Now, originally, Black Panther didn't have a particularly big role. Spider-Man had no role at all. And Tony Stark, well, because of interference from up top, Tony Stark was reduced to basically a cameo. Now, several of the actors did push back on this. And after some discussion and negotiation, they were like, you know what, you're right. This this should be a big deal for Tony Stark. We could do this as the Civil War story, which they'd been kicking around for years at this point. So they kind of restructured Winter Soldier 2 into this movie and started going with the Civil War angle. 
you can kind of feel some of the pieces of that in the film, because if you're paying attention, the actual Civil War aspects, both of them, actually, aren't really what comes into play when it comes to the finale of the film, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So as they're, they're putting this together, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll bring Tony on board, we'll bring uh, Robert Downey Jr. So what they did was they went to, uh, you know, to, to go ahead and say, yeah, we're signing him on. And the response from Perlmutter was, no, cut him from the film entirely. Now, there are some competing information on this specific event. Of course there are. But accounts vary from cut him from the movie to cut him from the MCU entirely. Some of you may or may not remember this, but at the time, there was a lot of talks that Robert Downey Jr. wasn't coming back for any films after Iron Man 3. With the advantage of hindsight, we can now say that a lot of that was specifically because of his issues with some of the executive meddling that was coming down from the committee, and Perlmutter in particular. He was one of many people who had issues with Phase 2 and the creation and production side of things. So when this came to a head, and Perlmutter said, just, just axe him, Feige finally had had enough and was like, okay, okay, okay. And he went to, and I got to write down his name, Alan Horn. And was like, help. <laughs> now you're probably thinking, who the hell is Alan Horn? He was the guy in charge of the Disney division. He was Perlmutter's boss. This is one of the strangest things to talk about when it comes to this. But for once, this going to Disney, the giant evil conglomerate of doom, was the right call. Because if Disney had not eaten Marvel, this would have never happened. And the MCU Phase 3 probably would have bombed or petered out entirely. I mean, I don't know. I kind of like quite a bit of the Phase 2. But I can see a lot of the flaws in it. And it's easily some of the most forgettable films when it comes to the franchise, and I think a lot of it is because of how hampered it was, especially with regards to the interconnectivity problem, which I've, I've talked about already. Imagine how bad, then, Phase 3 would be, given how much more the reins were being pulled back with regards to cost-cutting. Yeah. We certainly wouldn't have had Infinity War at all. Never mind Endgame. Anyways... Point being, Feige went above Perlmutter's head and said, can we just... And as a consequence, the Marvel Creative Committee, and I actually reported this on my lore week at the time, because by this point I was streaming and you know, doing my job thing here. And so I actually reported on this, like, this is a big deal, because the Creative Committee has been removed from creative control of the MCU. They're still over there. It's just Marvel Studios was removed entirely, and now Kevin Feige reports directly to Alan Horn, not Perlmutter. This also meant that Mr. Kevin here suddenly had universal creative control. He was abruptly the dictator of Marvel Studios, which sounds bad, but as we can see, was actually amazing, because all of a sudden he didn't have all this red tape and, and all of these people contradicting him and cost-cutting him and just... Blah, blah, blah. Now, this film... I know this is going to sound like a strange statement, because I know a lot of people love this film. I would say this film is probably one of the weakest films of Phase 3, and it makes sense to say why. Because this was being done in the middle of this transition. Remember, they'd already started work on this film when he finally went up to Horn and, and pushed for the, the restructuring. So, in the middle of development, they're like, hey, all of a sudden we can do what we want to do. And it kind of shows because there are several plot elements and script elements that basically feel like they were stapled together into something like a cohesive narrative. There's still some good moments, but a lot of those moments aren't really connected well. 
which I suppose brings me to the film itself. 1991, Hydra! It's good to see that we're still seeing the effects of Hydra even after Hydra has been effectively destroyed. And I mean that sincerely. Don't mistake me, I don't want Hydra back. What I mean by that is it's nice to see that for all... I mean, Hydra was active for, what, 60 years? Something like that? Active and dominating through multiple agencies across the globe for decades. It makes sense that the effects and consequences of what they did would still be rippling out to this very day. So, either way. So then we cut to Cap, Widow, who are both talented and skilled, trying to teach Scarlet exactly how to be, well, an agent, really. It's actually funny to me because she has no experience with this at all. She's a heavy, as I like to call it. In fact, actually, to be slightly more accurate, she's a glass cannon. She's got nothing going for her other than the fact that she has tremendous magical power. Which I know sounds like, that sounds awesome, and it kind of is. But my point being, one guy with a gun could kill her. One guy with a knife could kill her, right? Glass cannon. So, <clears throat> there's this whole scene where it's like, okay, we got to get this working. And it shows how inexperienced she is, and that's an important point. Because, again, character moments, which is where, in my opinion, this film shines. As opposed to its action sequences. And I'm going to share a story with you real quick. Some of you may remember me saying this during the discussion stream of this film, because, yes, we're at that point now. We're starting to get caught up with, with you know, stuff I've already covered uh, in the discussion streams. I was actually legitimately feeling a little bit sick during the intro of this film, during the big action sequence, because they use shaky cam, and because they use quick edits, uh, 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 and then, uh, like, like, five or six edits every 20 seconds, sometimes faster than that. And th those two things combined just made me go, okay... Let me know when it's done. <laughs> Ignoring the, the obvious nausea problem and headache problem, I don't actually think that's good cinematography. Like, from a director perspective, from an editing perspective, I legitimately feel like that's bad design, unless you're doing it for a very specific moment that requires that kind of thing, and this is just a generic action sequence, which absolutely does not. Anyways, so, uh, we've got some good stuff. Cap's doing good, Falcon's doing well. Scarlet's trying to keep up. Crossbones is is there, and then he dies immediately. <laughs> He's got the suicide bomb. Okay, sure. And I want to point out that as he suicide bombs, Wanda, of course, on instinct captures it, but doesn't really know what to do with it, so she just flings it up, which then leads to people dying. Now, that was a mistake. Basically, to put this into mundane terms, what she just did was threw a grenade at an enemy which bounced into a nearby building and exploded, and I, I guess grenade's a bad example, but you know, whatever. A, a bit of explosive which bounced into a nearby building and hurt civilians. Now, that is a big deal, absolutely. But considering how little experience she has, and how kind of new at this she is, and the fact that she is a legitimately decent person, you can see how much this really affects her. And it's all over her face. You'll also notice that Cap, who has been completely on top of things the entire action sequence, for the first time has to stutter like, uh, get, uh, get fire and, and, and medical. Like, cause he's, he's stunned by it after all. And why wouldn't he be? It's not like he doesn't care. This is, of course, the big turning point for things. And you know what's funny? The only reason it's the turning point is because by complete coincidence, some of the people who were died were Wakandans. Now, anybody who follows the comics is like, aha! But this is really the first time they started talking about Wakanda. It's been referenced a couple of times. It was brought up in, um, in Avengers 2, for example. But really, Wakanda's been off the map almost the entire MCU, except for a few references. 
This is the first real introduction into Wakanda people, society, etc. All we know for now is that, you know, vibranium comes from them, but we'll get into them in just a moment. But I do want to mention one thing, because this is some of the significance of this. These people are very isolated, very cloistered, but then some of their resources were stolen, and as a result of that theft, people started getting hurt. This was specifically in reference to Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, also known as Weekend of Ultron. And as a consequence of that, they're like, okay, okay, we'll reach out a little bit, we'll do some charity missions, we'll try to help people out. And one of those charity missions ends up getting their people killed by basically collateral damage. You can then see why Wakanda decides to raise a stink about this. Real quick aside, before I move forward into the actual politics, because there's a lot of politics to talk about here. Um, we have a quick aside. We see the Lola VFX thing with Young Downey. That's actually the, the studio that did it, Lola VFX. They had to do so much work with their de-aging stuff. Because, and they, they went full tilt. They went full tilt. Because that actually is Robert Downey Jr. there. And they have to... Because there's all sorts of things that happens to the human body when it gets older. So they had to lift the skin. And they had to change how the blood vessels are visible. And they had to smooth out wrinkles. And they had to you know reduce some of the mass and just all sorts of things that you do and it it was an incredible and heroic and nightmarish achievement which is funny because now it establishes a precedent now the MCU has the tech available costly and time consuming though it may be to de-age people which was why it was in this film it was the proving grounds this de-aging tech would be used extensively over in Captain Marvel for example anyways uh, we also see that, that he's named this thing, this whole thing Barf. That's, that sounds familiar. I wonder if that's ever going to come up. Oh, well, not this year. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. <clears throat> we, the teleprompter shows up. Um, you know, he's just like, oh, God, what do I do? They weren't originally, I shouldn't say originally, this script went through so many iterations. Like I said, because they weren't sure of exactly how the dice were going to land at the end of this, they really didn't know how to do some of the scripts. So some parts of the script are deliberately modular. It's kind of noticeable in certain sequences. So Potts is not in the film because they weren't sure where they were going with that, and the two of them have had a brief breakup, which is funny because the next time they meet, that will be basically off the table entirely. I suppose it's logical. You go through things. But moving on. This also then leads to, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Miss Woodard. She's the woman who's the mother, who just happens to be hanging out in the one space where Tony Stark happens to walk into on his way through. Because, look, there's a lot of coincidences in this film. It might be the most coincidency film since Star Wars. <laughs> it's actually kind of crazy. I'm just going to point a few of these out and move on, because if I actually went in-depth into all of these, it would get kind of ridiculous. So, coincidence, she's there. And uh, I'll always remember her from Star Trek First Contact, personally. But she does a good job here. And uh, lays the guilt on Mr. Tony. First strike. So, <clears throat> this then leads to a scene where Captain America, that is to say Rogers, is talking to Wanda. And Wanda is completely messed up over this. Logical, right? Of course she's messed up over this. Why wouldn't she be? I just noticed the camera's kind of low here. I've got to have my hands... I can't do this. You can barely see me gesturing. Um, of course she's messed up about this. And of course she's taking all this blame on herself. Meanwhile, Cap is taking all the blame on himself. You'll notice they're both wrong. 
Oh, don't mistake me. If you want to go into like a purely mathematical sake, you'd say she made the wrong call and he made the wrong call. But in both cases, it's kind of unnecessary because, you know, the one who actually is to blame here is the insane terrorist with the suicide vest who blew himself up to kill Captain America. I think we could place the blame on him. Oh, but he's dead. You can't put blame on it. We have to have someone. We have, we're angry. Ah, oh, we have to punish someone. We have to have vengeance. This is probably the one and only theme that this film manages to maintain from beginning to end, in my opinion, is the theme of vengeance. Those people on that television, the people decrying Wanda, they don't care about fault or blame. They don't care about justice. They just want to hurt her because they perceive her as a target they can hurt because the one who actually did it is dead. Vision comes through the wall. Vision, dude! There's, 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 there's convenience, and then they're showing off, man. Come on. Anyways. <clears throat> then Ross comes in. It's probably worth noting that multiple people involved in this actually... So, first of all, they weren't sure they were going to get him back. I can't even think of the actor's name. Hunt, I want to say? They weren't even sure they were going to get him back. So they just wrote him as the Secretary of State. He then became Thunderbolt Ross because... He was capable of coming back. But as they were talking about it, they were like, well, we kind of wanted to keep The Incredible Hulk in, but both the directors and the actor himself have all said that they portrayed him as a new and different character, which leads... which, huh? <laughs> so once again, we've just kind of got a uh, situation with The Incredible Hulk, which kind of started this whole thing. <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> so Ross starts out light. And this argument has always pissed me off. I've seen this argument in comics for years. This is an old comic storyline. I've seen this argument in several other aspects of real-life history um, and a lot of other things I could go into. I'm trying not to name specifics because that gets a little controversial. But I've seen this argument many times, and every time I do, it pisses me off. You know what the argument is? You went off and saved the world, and while you were doing so, while you were, and I'm going to stress this point, saving the world, from a planetary conquering force, you ended up doing damage to a city. Now, should they be blameless for that? No. Should they be, you know, like, oh, God, yeah, whatever, and just shrug it off? No, because then they'd be justice lords. Obviously, it does bother them. I just spent some time talking about how much it bothers them. But the argument is then, well, this is your fault. And you need to be called to cost. You are the one who must be controlled. And every time I hear that, I just start laughing a little bit internally. I wish I could just myself real quick into that dimension that totally exists. <laughs> what is it, 116 or something? I can't remember. No, no, it's 616, isn't it? That, that's the one. Anyway, uh, just warp myself in there and be like, look, look, hey, hey, Ross, Ross. Okay, you got it, buddy. The next time aliens start pouring out a portal, we'll go ahead and do exactly what the government says to do. Oh, that's right. I remember. The government's solution was to nuke the Isle of Manhattan. What was that about collateral damage? I, I, I feel like you said something about collateral damage as being a major part of your point. I don't know why you would bring that up, though, because, I mean, obviously the nuke would fix it, and if it didn't, oh, we could just keep nuking the portal, right? I mean, that's just easy. Especially since, by all that we understand, nuking the portal might not have actually done anything. Maybe. Depends on how it, things lined up. Every time this comes up, I just want to say, what exactly do you want from these people? 
Now, don't mistake me. Obviously, collateral damage is a thing. I myself have made fun of it when it comes to superhero things because it's just part of the superhero gig shtick at this point. Uh, I, I covered Young Justice late last year, and that was talking about several in several episodes of that. There's just and they just kind of in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which I covered earlier this year. There's scenes where they just start wrecking poor Aunt May's house, and it's like collateral damage is just kind of a thing. It's attached now. So I like the idea of acknowledging that, but doing so in an intelligent way would be nice, instead of this is your fault. Now, I know, I know, human beings aren't intelligent. I get it. Doesn't mean I like the story like line any better. And then Vision, of course, brings up the escalation theory. <laughs> that's, that's a nice one. Vision's like, you know, since superhero peoples have shown up, supervillains have shown up. Obviously, it's the fault of the superheroes. Now, every time I hear that argument, I laugh a little bit. It's actually called the superhero paradox. And it gets across the idea that, I mean, if we're being honest, this is actually a flaw of the storytelling style because most of these stories were not written long-term in mind. But, like, how many of the various continuities have had a thing where a superhero has his origin story and then immediately a supervillain has their origin story? Like, right next to each other, right? That's just, that's crazy and actually insane if you think about it. Sometimes they're directly connected. Sometimes they're well written. Most of the time they're just, they just happen to happen at the same time. Uh, Spider-Man 1, the Raimi one, is a pretty good example of this. Not to, to, da to bash on that film. It's a good film. Well, it's an okay film. But, you know, by complete coincidence, the Green Goblin and Spider-Man come into being very close, closely next to each other. Now, if you don't get why I'm bringing this up, the point that's being made by Vision and Ross is that the superheroes are part of the problem, and that's a load of hooey. I want you to go back to the example I just mentioned. Spider-Man? The, the other, the Raimi Spider-Man, not this one. Oh yeah, spoiler, Spider-Man's in this. And I want you to imagine that... Let's try that again. Spider-Man's gone. Doesn't exist. Okay, so now there's Green Goblin and no one to contest him. So what happens? <laughs> oh, but it's the superhero's fault, right? Like, you get why this bugs me so much? Now, all of this is, a, is the realm of massive theoretical. And, of course, well, let's be honest with ourselves. I've already said what this is really about. This is about vengeance. This isn't about accountability. This isn't about politics, although it should be. I'll get to that in a minute. This isn't about, you know, consequences of, of collateral damage. This is about vengeance. Bad stuff has happened, and the bad guys are dead, but you're still here. And I think that's part of why this pisses me off so much. I'm not a big vengeance fan, if it's not obvious. I'm trying not to turn that into a demon hunter joke. Anyways. <clears throat> so, next point, before I move on, none of them acknowledge Hydra in this equation. You remember Hydra, right? The organization that was so um, enmeshed into society that the big intel organization of the world was actually a Hydra organization? <laughs> you know, that Hydra? And you're probably thinking, Laura, why are you bringing that up? Well, first of all, it's relevant because, A, it defeats their point, if Hydra had been in charge all this time. In fact, they even show the Washington, D.C. thing with those helicarriers as, as a point they're making, as if it would be better if Hydra had operated unhindered because they were legal. 
what they were doing was fully allowed and fully ratified, right up until they turn on the machine and kill millions of people. Or maybe I should point out the fact that their whole point is we want to have accountability. We want you to be under the purview of the United Nations summit and blah, blah, blah. And so you're going to be under you know governmental control at this point on. To which I say, again, Hydra, who was either pieces of or in charge of governments, plural, for a long time. No one's going to bring that up? Okay. Okay. Let me talk about politics, because this is the big point for me, and this is the problem, because this is what this story should have been, in my opinion. Oh, don't mistake me, the vengeance theme is fine, and it works well. And like I said, good moments. But uh, there's actually a lot of really fascinating politics here, in my opinion. What they're trying to do is nationalize superheroes. Now, if you don't understand how big of a deal that is... Unfortunately, there's nothing in real life that actually equates to this, so hear me out. I want you to imagine that one day we find the Starship Enterprise, and we figure out how to use it. It's empty, and it's found, and it's brought in, and then some good people get on board, you know, legitimately decent people, and they use it to help the world. And then a committee under the United Nations gets together and says, that should be ours. You see where this is going? Because the idea here is now the Avengers will suddenly become a political tool. Another political tool. Something to be lobbied for. Something to be argued for. Something to be lobbied against and argued against. Something to be positioned or repositioned specifically dependent on circumstances. Now, Captain Rogers barely brings this up. In fact, the whole film barely brings this point up. But this right here is why the Sokovia cards are bullocks. And this should never have gone forward. This is actually insane. It is specifically because of the long-term political ramifications of this happening. Not, not, this isn't necessarily a today problem, but nobody brings up what this is going to do to the world. What's going to happen when some of those United Nations na member states of the 117 or whatever start to disagree with each other? What if there's an actual conflict? What if there's a terrorist attack which is being funded by one nation against another? There are so, so, so many possible scenarios in which all of a sudden the Avengers being under a flag is suddenly a problem. Because now, anytime the Avengers act, it's with committee approval, which means either overt or uh, tacit, I think. It's either overt or not, like, like uh, passive, we'll go with passive approval by those member states which all of a sudden can be brought into economic crises or the nature of how uh, tariffs work or trade stipulations or literally actual conflict and war. This is a huge mess, especially since what they're trying to do is to they're trying to drag all of the known superheroes under one flag, by which I mean 117 flags, which is even more insane. I myself, in one of the stories I was writing, wrote about the nationalization of superheroes because I'm astonished so few superhero stories have actually done this because I feel like it's a fascinating avenue of storytelling because there's so much can be done with that, right? Like the moment one nation starts doing it, everyone else has to do it. they got to keep up. And all of a sudden the balance of power shifts because let's say you're a relatively small nation, few resources, small military, but you've got a very strong superhero like Wonder Woman level. 
all of a sudden you have become a big player on the scene because you have someone who is a state-sponsored governmental agent. Just like the military is considered to be an act of the nation, that hero is now an act of the nation. It politicizes everything, good and bad. And the fact that they don't bring this up at all is, is just its a crying shame, in my opinion. Forgive me for rambling on about that. Let's move on. Let's move on. So, there's this bit where Ross is a moron. I hate Ross, by the way, in the MCU. It's not as bad as he is over in Infinity War, but good God, I just want to punch the man until the blood stops coming out. With a really big gauntlet with like a gem here and a gem... I, uh... <clears throat> Sorry, fantasizing. He, th he hardballs them, right? Which is stupid. If you don't understand my point, let me try this again. Okay, so what he tries to do is to say, All right, well, you're going to sign these accords, and the nations are going to take control of the Avengers Initiative, and if you don't, then you'll retire, and you'll never superhero again, ever, ever, ever. Now, there's only a few ways they can enforce that. There's the polite way, which is actually what happens to uh, Scott in Ant-Man 2, and then there's the not polite way which is what they do to Scott in this film. Funny how he's a, he's a good example for that. Anyways. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, this that's not a fun topic to discuss because what he's effectively doing is being willing to declare war on an individual who is a super to some extent or another. And people like Wanda or Vision? Anyways. <clears throat> he also, though, there's another problem with him. See, I'm not saying they couldn't shut them down, especially Stark. A government actually has a weirdly large amount of power under emergency circumstances to take down a wealthy individual. They usually don't, because corruption. But that is something that's within possibility. I actually have a good comic book example of that. Amanda Waller. She could cause a lot of trouble for Bruce Wayne if she chose to. She usually doesn't. She usually tries to relatively play ball, because she recognizes to some extent or another that they are on the same side, even if they're using completely different methods and purposes. So she usually uses other methods, but that was actually a big point in the DCAU, was that she could shut Bruce Wayne down if she wanted to, at least temporarily. But here's the other problem. <clears throat> um, so they shut the Avengers down. Okay, let's say it's all nice and peachy. Let's say everyone goes along with it. Okay, we'll never help anyone ever again. So what happens the next time a random hydro terrorist cell goes and attacks a chemical plant and steals a super virus and then uses it to kill people? Who's going to stop them? <laughs> As we see in this film, the actual special forces are uh, incredibly incompetent. What, uh, what are you going to do about that? That's a small-scale threat, by the way. What are you going to do the next time something big happens, like... I don't know, random example, let's say that Thanos' forces invade. What are you going to do then? Then again, we know what they do then, because remember Ross's reaction to that? You should arrest these men immediately. <sighs> I'm telling you, just, just wrong hand, wrong hand. It's this hand, it's this hand. All right, moving on, moving on. I've spent too much time talking about this. Although, as always, I am curious of your thoughts on this, because even though the movie doesn't discuss this at all, there is a lot of interesting core elements here to discuss, in my opinion. So... Can I say Hydra's always bothered me by their raw fanaticism? I know that sounds strange, but anyone who is just that committed as, as just, what the hell, man? What is your problem? Hail Hydra as I drown to death. Okay, sure, whatever. Now, oh, yes, one, one additional point, sorry. <laughs> Let's go back to the topic I just said I'd let go of. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but 
Um, so there's a question they never actually uh, they never actually discuss. What does having oversight solve? Let's say the mission that would just happened was approved by the oversight committee. Okay, so then the mission happens and people die in Wakanda. Okay, what has changed? What's different exactly? Now I'll tell you what's different. What's different is now there's another chip in the pile. That wasn't as loud as I was hoping for. Let's try a couple here. There's another chip or two in the pile that there wasn't initially. I'm telling you, this is all politics. That's all that really changes. Because now Wakanda can go to the committee and say, well, hang on, this happened and our people died. We demand recompense. <laughs> we demand vengeance. So, <clears throat> um, Carter dies. Sharon Carter walks into the story. I, I have a side note here on my notes. You ever wonder what's going through people's minds if someone who is as morally centric as Captain Rogers says, no, I'm not signing that, that's wrong. Like, does it, they never address this at all, but has it ever run through anybody's minds that the fact that, like, one of the most universally good people in the world just said, no, no, I'm doing, not doing that, that's wrong, and you're on the side of that. Does it ever make people go, huh? It's just, just something to think about. I mean, that happened in uh, Winter Soldier. Anyways, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Can I just say the man's awesome? I really like Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther. I've actually talked about this before, and I'll probably talk about this more when we get to the Black Panther film. But seeing him and seeing the, extents of it, the extent of his role in this film was actually awesome. I've talked about this before. It was originally supposed to be Spider-Man. Actually, no, that's a lie, too, because it was originally supposed to be someone else entirely. And there's several accounts of who exactly that was. And then they're like, oh, we might get Spider-Man. So then they wrote a bunch of things for Spider-Man. And they're like, oh, we're probably not going to get Spider-Man. Okay, well, then we'll go ahead and have it be Black Panther. And so Black Panther kind of, his role got expanded and expanded. And then they're like, we did it. We actually got Spider-Man. And then they're like, okay, well, at this point, the story we've structured is so directly tied in to that of, of uh, T'Challa. We can't undo this. So, by what is effectively coincidence, he got his big break in this film. And he carries it very, carries it very well, in my opinion. He even has a character arc, for God's sakes. And it was a great way to introduce Black Panther, because, unfortunately, as with so many of the characters of the MCU, Black Panther was a relatively lower... Uh, I don't want to say lower tier, lower popularity, right? Like, everyone's heard of the X-Men. You know, this is the Iron Man thing all over again, right? Comic book fans know who Iron knew who Iron Man was, but before the MCU, Iron Man was was much smaller scale in terms of overall popularity. So having someone like Black Panther come in and be such a major role actually ended up working really well because it made the public consciousness aware of him and at least some of his shtick. He does get several fight scenes, and we see Bozeman, who again carries the role very well. So that's awesome. As I, think, as I think I've mentioned before, I've always been a fan of Black Panther myself, because as I like to put it, it's another take on Batman. Someone who has tremendous wealth and resources and power at his back, uh, Gotham Industries or Wakanda. But and in the difference here is that, in addition to that, he is also just as smart as Bruce Wayne, but has the, the abilities and the suit, and it, basically he's like, he's more meta 
That is to say, he is more metahuman than Batman and goes in a different direction rather than Batman being the craped, caped crusader and whatnot. Black Panther is, you know, the, the, the actual... I call them Xemnases. I know that's an awful term, and some of you are probably going to think, wait, what? It's someone who has very high physical attributes. Spider-Man is a good example of a Xemnas. So, you know, he's got all of that attributes, and he's got all that power behind him, and so he can maneuver both as a king and as Spider-Man. And I just, I love the dynamic, you know? I love it. Anyway, sorry, getting off topic, getting off topic. So this is when we find out Wakanda was reaching up because of Ultron. I already mentioned that. And I have a note here. This... This incompetent group is the group that wants oversight. This... What? <laughs> they have one piece of evidence, which is flimsy, I feel like pointing out, and they decide to go after him with orders to shoot on sight to kill. The, what? This is... And nobody is sitting there thinking, huh, or trying to look into it or anything. No, 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 no. This, this is actually ludicrous. And I'm just going to move on from that. I do say, I have a note here, I really like Falcon and Cap's chemistry. The two gel very nicely. They did in Winter Soldier as well. <sighs> There's this bit where Bucky is eating, buying plums. I just, that's a really nice touch. Plums are supposed to help with Alzheimer's. I don't know if they actually do or not, but it's something I'm aware of thanks to my great-grandmother. And, uh, you know, he's got memory issues. Anyway, <clears throat> so... Action sequence. You'll notice I'm brushing over most of the action sequences. Unfortunately, most of the action sequences in this film are just kind of unmemorable. They, they feel like, yeah, okay, and here an action sequence goes. There's only really, I'd say, two which actually fit within the coherence of the narrative, and this is not one of them. However, we do have some good stuff going on. Um, it's interesting, though. Panther jumps in. And we get to see what he's about. And like I said, he's a Zemnus, so he's got the, you know, the speed, the strength. The simplest way to explain a Zemnus is think about the stats, okay? You know, strength and dexterity and constitution, uh, intellect, wisdom, charisma, right? A Zemnus is all of the physical stats are much higher than usual. Like I said, Spider-Man is a very good example of this. You could argue perception would be in that as well, but that's usually something separate. Spider-Man's perception is actually part of his shtick, whereas everyone else is usually just much stronger and better. Captain America himself arguably is one, but that's not his shtick. Captain America's shtick is his charisma. <laughs> He's the cap. Anyways, <clears throat> so War Machine comes in. Now this is funny. I'm going to skip ahead a bit because there's a scene where they cut to Wanda and Vision, but I want to skip that for a second. Because War Machine gets in and stops the fighting and everyone just holds their fire. Now that's interesting. They were given orders to shoot on sight. But now that they have people who have actually been fighting them, they choose not to fire. Now that's interesting because Cap has an interaction with Widow later, which is fascinating. She says, for the record, things getting worse, this is what it looks like. And his response is, he's not dead. And Widow can't even give a rejoinder to that. Think about that for a moment. Captain America, let's be honest, has always had the microscopic perspective. The perspective of the individual. It's kind of his nature, and there's nothing wrong with that. Widow here is arguing for the macroscopic perspective. And that's why this little back and forth, it's just a tiny little scene, but it's so fascinating, because they're both right. From a microscopic perspective, things are better. He managed to save Bucky's life. He did exactly what he set out to do. From her perspective, things are worse because now there's this big political hoo-ha-ha and everything's just thrown up in the air and nobody knows exactly what to do about it. Both are right. 
And funnily enough, neither is wrong either. That's the funny part. Uh, but let's rewind for a second, because then we have Wanda and Vision. I hope that show's going to be good. I think it'll have gone live by the time this video goes live. But obviously, as of the time of recording it, it has not. I hope that show's going to be good. I don't, I don't have much, you know, I, I don't have a lot of expectations, really. Especially given the time it's going to be set in since, you know, Infinity War. <sighs> they have some good chemistry. No, that's not true. I'm going to take that back. The actors don't have good chemistry. What they have is a good dynamic. They are actually as alike as they are disalike. He and she both have no idea who or what they are, and they feel different, but the same. He's young and has no idea what the Infinity Stone is, and she's not really young, but she's kind of young and experienced, to put it into such terminology. But she's still trying to figure out who and what she is. Not the extent of what she can do, just who and what she is. Also, I had a note later where I mentioned why aren't the heavies involved in any of this, because Vision and Wanda are probably the biggest heavies they have other than the Hulk. And he's off on Trash Planet right now. <clears throat> Spoilers. But, uh... Honestly, I actually think that this is a, a good thing, as weird as this sounds. Not, not just for construction purposes, but because one heavy is countering the other. Vision is there as Wanda's, Wanda's jailer. This is probably the definition of the Velvet Prison right here. And the Velvet Prison, well, that's a complicated topic. Because it is velvet, but it is a prison. As Tony Stark points out, it's got a hundred acre area, it's got a pool. She's not exactly being held in some kind of cell with, like she is later in this film. She is being taken care of and put to a place where she can prosper. It's just she also can't leave there. That is the whole point of the Velvet Prison, in a nutshell. I'm not going to give any opinions on that, because in my opinion, it depends massively on the circumstances. Some people don't mind being cloistered in. I imagine a lot of you, real life, and I mean no offense by this, would have no problem being in a Velvet Prison. Because I imagine a lot of you don't actually get out that much anyways. That's not an accusation. I don't either. I work seven days a week, you know? I have to take a break from my job to go get groceries. I don't get out all that much. So if my circumstances were a lot more comfortable, it'd be like, yeah, okay. As long as I can get my groceries delivered or something, because I still got to cook. Those Lord Irves don't make themselves, you know. But um, at the same time, there are a lot of people who would hate the idea of a velvet prison. Not just because of the fact that, you know, after a while you kind of want to get out and you get a little stir-crazy, but more to the point, it is not their choice. It's not their choice to leave. They're stuck there. I mean, you could say they chose to go in and chose to accept the Velvet Prison, but once they have done so, the choice is taken away from them. This is actually one of the things Rogers brings up several times. And this is, if you're paying attention, one of the big sticking points that pushes Rogers away from the Sokovia Accords permanently. When he finds out that Wanda is in a Velvet Prison, he loses it. Because he's always been about the perspective of the individual and the choice of the individual. This is especially telling because of how much he probably sympathizes with Wanda since he's not only been there, as someone who's brand new to a job and all of a sudden given superpowers, he was basically the first one, arguably. But also because of the fact that he just doesn't think that's right. Removing freedom of choice from people is something he's not agreeing with. As a quick aside, some people argued that CAP should have been pro-registration. Well, it's not registration. Pro-committee, uh, pro 
and Stark should have been anti-committee. And there's some logic there. After all, Cap is someone who has a long history of working with the government and the military and the special forces. And Tony is someone who has always just been kind of on the fringe doing his own thing and telling Congress to screw itself in public, Iron Man 2. The problem is Cap has seen firsthand what happens when corruption seeps into an organization. And he has seen firsthand the need for being able to operate outside the bounds of legal disposition. That, that's what Winter Soldier was all about, really. Tony, well, he's kind of flip-flopped a little bit, but it's probably worth noting that he works with Rhodey a lot, and he has a lot of experience working with the U.S. military, like going back to before the film started. And he, after seeing all that this is, he ironically is still taking the individual perspective, just like Rogers is, but Rogers is thinking about ideals. Tony's thinking about guilt. One of the things I like most about this film, in fact, I would actually argue it is probably my favorite aspect of the entire film, is every single scene that Tony's in, you know, it's like there's a scene with Tony and then some stuff happens, some stuff happens, and then there's another scene and then some stuff happens. It's not a consistent thing, but every time he comes back on camera, he looks worse. He looks more bedraggled. He's not keeping his suit as tight as he was. He's, his, the, the, the marks under his eyes get bigger. The makeup gets heavier. He's usually bruised or bloodied. He just looks haggard. I've actually had a theory before, which I posit to you now, that he literally isn't sleeping during the events of this, of this film. Because it's not that long of a period of time that this film occurs across. Or if he is sleeping, it's very fitful, very unrestful sleep. And I know exactly what that feels like. And I imagine a bunch of you do too. And I point that out because that's going to be important later. So, Tony, Cap, they chat for a bit. Cap is legitimately sorry about Pepper. He didn't know. And I love how real the respect and friendship is between the two people. Both actors have commented many times on how the connection and relationship between Captain America and Iron Man, or more accurately, between Rogers and Stark, is one of the most important elements of this entire role for them and how much it matters for both of them. It's probably part of why Endgame went the way it did. So, I've actually heard people argue that the entire story of the MCU Infinity Saga is the story of Captain Rogers and Tony Stark. But anyways, this is when Stark starts to really hardline his position. I'm trying to do what has to be done to stave off something worse. Now that sounds familiar. Like a, like a suit of armor around the world, right? <laughs> that, that's important. Remember that. So, Zemo. Okay. Uh, Zemo comes in, manages to maneuver his way in. He's like, ha ha ha, I will use Russian brainwashing techniques to take control of your mind. Now, Bucky actually breaks out of his restraints, which is funny in its own right, by the way, the fact that he could do that. I know the power was off. But my first question is, why didn't he just cover his ears? Yeah, I know how it should have ended covered that too. But honestly, he should have just covered his ears and just be like, da 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 I mean, it wouldn't have been dignified, but it might have worked and saved everyone a lot of problems. Here's an interesting comment. Several people mentioned that Bucky does horrible things while under, you know, that he kills people while he has been mind-controlled. And that's true. That's true. Did you know we have legal precedents for this kind of thing? Not, you know... Hydra brainwashing techniques, although that's another topic. Let's not talk about that. But, no, what I mean is, if you are someone who is coerced, 
uh, at gunpoint or at violent threat to you or your family or whatever to do a violent crime, that is taken into account. Now, you probably won't get away completely blameless because you still did it, but there's actually a lot of legal precedent for that, at least here in the States. And I only bring that up because no one in the film does. They just all say, no, he did it. No, he's completely innocent. No, he did it. No, he's completely innocent. There's a scene which is considered the best scene in the film by some people. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but it's a good damn scene. It's the scene where Bucky's trying to take off in the helicopter and, you know, Rogers grabs the helicopter and holds it there. Did you know he actually, the actual real-life person, um... Uh, oh, oh my god, I can't think of his actor's name. Chris Evans. Chris Evans actually injured himself doing that scene, because that's just him. There's no CGI either. That's just him flexing as hard as he can against a crane that was pulling against him. Jesus Christ. They had to specifically do that scene in a specific way, at a specific time in his exercise regime, to make sure he was as muscular as possible, because they wanted to make sure it looked as good as possible. But... um I do have to say, though, that scene does have some special weight, because the whole point is that is his point. That is his modus operandi. You can't stop this, but you're going to try. This has been, this is important, and I'm, I'm stopping here to talk about this for a reason, because this will come up in Infinity War. Captain Rogers has always been someone who refuses to stand down and refuses to give up. And that's actually, this is going to carry forward even into Endgame. He has faced hopeless situations, more than once. And he never, ever, ever backs down. And this is him literally physically showing that, pushing himself to the absolute limits of what he can do as Captain America and as Steve Rogers. But he is not letting go of that helicopter. And he is not letting go of that building. That is, well, that's Captain America in a nutshell, isn't it? It's not necessarily good, but you can see how it's kind of admirable. And it will continue to hold him through until the one and only time when he is legitimately out of his league and he just can't hold on anymore. And that'll come up in Infinity War. But you'll notice, even after Infinity War in Endgame, he doesn't change. On your left. Anyways. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. But I wanted to stop here and talk about that, because that is an important moment, and, you know, part of the arcs. At this point, from Phase 3, well, I'd I'd say, in Phase 3, they were really pushing the connectivity between films. And uh, they they brought in a lot of the same consultants and a lot of the same people. Obviously, the people who did this did both Infinity War and Endgame. But my point is, with Feige off the reins, so to speak, he was really pushing for things to have more direct continuity with each other, rather than vague and implied continuity with each other, like Phase 2's problem was. And I just point that out because we're going to be pointing out a lot of connecting threads. I hope you've seen the whole series, because I might spoil a few things without really meaning to. Moving on. So Zemo is evil. Yep, okay. Um, This is when we find out about the other Winter Soldiers and Zemo's plot. You know, if this had happened a week ago, it's always timing with these things. They could have just called Tony. They, They probably should have still called Tony. But this, of course, leads to the big reveal. They actually held their lips on this pretty well. They didn't even sell Spider-Man toys until this film was already out. And they had this, uh, it was the, like the last trailer spot is the one that revealed Spider-Man. Can I just say, I know that they would never do this, but I actually think they shouldn't have even kept it in the trailer. I think it should have been a big reveal in the film itself, because they managed to keep the lid on this really well until that second trailer. And then it's like, oh, 
Okay. I know, I know, selling points, but God, by this point, the MCU was a juggernaut. And that would have had some very lasting staying power and probably would have ensured better ticket sales, too, because people would have wanted to see it again. Regardless, we have Tom Holland, who beat out a lot of people to play Spider-Man. Very young, 19, as of the time of this film's making. I always get weirded out when I see good actors who are so much younger than me. What am I doing with my life? Tom Holland, in my opinion, is the best actor to portray Parker and Spider-Man, in my opinion. Now, that's there's some serious competition for that in multiple directions, but most of the other people who do a good job with one or the other tend to do a good job with one or the other, playing Parker or playing Spidey. This is one of the reasons I think Holland succeeds so well, is that he manages both so well. He also apparently is just as, you know, like, he's a, he's a kind of an adorkable sort of a guy in real life, but he was really, really nervous on filming, and actually Robert Downey Jr., funnily enough, literally took him under his wing and helped to coach him through his role. And It's okay, it's okay, we need to do a second take, we'll do a second take. We got your back, dude. Which is funny, considering that the, the arc that Tony Stark and Spider-Man would end up going on. <laughs> so, Tony is keeping tab on other capes, metas, inhumans, whatever you want to call them, people who are, you know, superhuman. Of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? No, no what I think is interesting is that Tony's been keeping track on that, and he hasn't been sharing that with, uh, you know, the Department of State, the UN. Yeah, yeah, I'm with that, too. Even when he's working with the government, he's not working with the government. There's also a good point where, um, <laughs> actually probably my favorite little tidbit, I'm just going to gush here for a little bit, is that okay? My favorite little tidbit is he's like, so, um, it's kind of a long story, and he starts to go into his origin story, but by this point, like, it's literally become a gag, the origin stories of superheroes, and Spider-Man in general. So what they do is they just cut him off. Nope, nope, don't want to hear it. Moving on. <laughs> so we don't even hear his origin story. I love that. Because we don't need to. He's Spider-Man. Okay, we're good. Um, but I wrote down the quote he wrote down. Now, this is a wonderful quote. When you can do the things I can do, and you don't, and bad things happen, it's because of you. Now, I like that quote. It reminds me of something that Darkseid said over in the DC Universe to Superman. You are so powerful that choosing not to act is still a choice and therefore has subsequent consequences. When you are at a certain level of capacity and you deliberately decide not to do anything, blame can and should be shifted onto you for not doing something, right? Now, that doesn't really apply in real life the same way it does to fiction, because in fiction you can have the ability to be Spider-Man. But that's a wonderful quote and a wonderful way to put it, and I like that take on, you know, responsibility, etc. This, of course, leads to the Spider-Man problem. So, obviously, they were really happy to get Spider-Man in. The problem is his inclusion of this film actually makes very little sense. Him going under Stark? Sure, that makes sense. Um, him going out of the side of registration and working for the government? Uh, what? Okay, that doesn't make as much sense. Stark bringing, being like, we need to be more responsible about collateral damage. Now I'm going to bring a 19-year-old kid in to do this. I, I think he was actually playing a teenager. So bringing this teenage kid in to do this thing, that's a... Uh, that that's kind of the opposite of your point there, Tony. Now, the problem is, as I already mentioned, because there was so much back and forth on whether or not Spider-Man was going to get in at all, when he finally came in, they only really had one slot in the script to put him in, and this is that slot. 
He only gets like 10 minutes of screen time total. It's not a lot. He does a lot with it, though. Anyways. So, Clint shows up. That's awesome. Uh, he is, as usual, the heart of the team. They say heart is a stupid superpower, and those people are not thinking straight, because heart is an amazing superpower, especially when you're the heart of a team like this. You don't need to be superpower. That's what Wanda's here for. But Wanda wouldn't act without Clint, so there you go. Um... <laughs> He has a great quote I wrote down just because it's so great. If you want to mope, you go to high school. God, ain't that the truth. So, uh, there's a very, very, very brief romance. It's literally just one kiss between uh, Miss Carter, uh, not Peggy, uh, I can't even think of her name, and Captain America. And what's funny about this is, in character, they say it's about time, and his buddies are just grinning. My sister was sitting next to me when I saw that film. She was just like, oh, look, they're just crying. It's so cute. But um, a lot of people had problems with that. And I actually have to include myself in it. It's very cute. But really? Especially given what happens at Endgame? Really? Anyways. So, Ant-Man shows up. Wait, what? Why? What? Okay, this bugs the crap out of me. First of all, Paul Rudd is awesome. But again, he should probably be on the side of the government. You can see how, ideologically speaking, Ant-Man and Spider-Man should actually probably be swapped in this affair, right? Spider-Man should be the one who is going for, you know, oh, we need to do the right thing no matter what, and Ant-Man should be the one towing the line because of how hard he is trying to work to make a go of being straight, right? Like, that, that was his whole plot line back in Ant-Man, right? In fact, the direct consequences of this will inform the entirety of Ant-Man 2. Now, Ant-Man 2 is amazing, but Anyways, obviously Wasp was supposed to be here too, but she was pregnant, and they didn't want to do disservice to her character, so she was just kind of ejected. They'll make fun of that later. And then we have superheroes versus superheroes, because that's how it always works. This is such an old cliche, I don't even know what else to say about it. There are so many jokes that can be made about stories over the years in comics, games, and movies, and shows about how there's just some incredibly contrived reason for two people who are on the same side or who are friends, or have no reason to fight each other, to suddenly fight. Why? Because they want the, the, because they want the action sequence, because they want to see what happens when Captain America fights Iron Man. I, forgive me for sounding tired, but this is a really, really, really old cliche at this point. And while the airport scene is not bad, it's also kind of not as good as I think it should have been. I know that sounds strange. There's some little tidbits, you know, everyone's got a gimmick these days. Everything about Spider-Man is just awesome in this section. Spider-Man versus Falcon and uh, Bucky is just amazing. Um, the team lineup, you know, no one going full tilt. Uh, they even match up Destroyer versus Destroyer with War Machine versus Giant Man. Spidey starts making prop references, that'll come up in the future. Um, they fight and they fight and they fight. Here, here's my biggest problem with it. There's actually two. First is there's no real consequence. Don't tell me the roadie thing. That's as close as we get to consequences, and he'll be fine by the next film that he's in, literally. No. My other big... So that's the first big problem. There's no consequences of this fight. I mean, they, they, they trashed this airport. Notice how Stark had the airport evacuated first? Yeah, he knew what was coming. <sighs> Collateral damage, I'm telling you. How many planes do they destroy? Those are expensive, you know. The next thing, though, that bothers me about this is... They say several times that they're holding back against each other, and then they say that they're not holding back anymore. 
But if you look at it, and I was paying attention this time around, there's no appreciable difference in strategy or style or anything whatsoever between these two approaches. That would have been awesome. The idea that they're all holding back because none of them want to hurt each other. This is made very evident at the end where Rhodey, excuse me, uh, Falcon, you know, Sam, is going after Rhodey and attacks him in a way that's supposed to delay him, and then Vision attacks and misses, and both Falcon and Iron Man are def desperately trying to reach Rhodey before he just collapses with the ground. There was no intent to hurt there, in other words. This is the one big distinction between superheroes versus superheroes and superheroes versus supervillains. The S versus S, that is to say the first one, are not trying to kill each other. And that could have been really cool if they showed that. If they showed them basically doing this ballet dance thing and constantly have little tidbits, just, just little stuff, like choreography bits, or, hey, whoa, uh, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. All right. You know, just <laughs> little stuff. But instead, it just looks like any other fight. And that's the problem. It really does just look like any other fight. So Widow's driven into hiding. Rosh finishes his path into becoming a supervillain. Don't mistake me. There's actually a great value in cooperation and coordination, which is another thing this film never brings up, by the way. They keep talking about oversight, as if the government should be in charge of the Avengers. What about the government working with the Avengers? Having official attaches both directions. Sharing intelligence and communication. Coordinating operations. There's actually a great deal of value in that. Never even brought up. My way or the highway. I actually legitimately think that Ross in the MCU is a power monger. That he's literally power hungry and just trying to be in charge. Which would make sense for Thunderbolt Ross. So we see the raft, which is just messed up. And then we get to the climax of the film. Stark goes to help, you know, as, as alone, as a friend. Notice they have a truce. They mentioned that. Now I bring that up because that's actually interesting. A truce is by definition temporary. They don't have peace. They don't have actual coordination or cooperation. It's just, we're calling a truce for right now. Time out. Time out. We've got to work on something. This brings me to Zemo's plan. Now, uh, Brule, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, actually does a great job here. I've only seen him in one other thing, really, playing Nicky Lauda, but he did a great job there. But um, he's a good villain. He's an interesting villain. He's a good actor. The problem is his plan is, in my opinion, by far the weakest part of the entire film. If you actually zoom the camera out and look at all the working pieces, moving pieces that had to work properly for his plan to work, it's actually kind of nuts. And he just got lucky, and then he got lucky, and then he got lucky, and then he got lucky, over and over and over and over again, until, hey, everything just happened to go perfectly right, with one exception. And that's just ridiculous, <laughs> if I might be so bold. The film doesn't even try to explain it. Why would it? This is where the script problems come most into, into the fray, by the way. Because the Zemo plot is the most obvious thing that doesn't really fit with most of the rest of the film, even though it's the main plot of the film. And you can see the script issues on full display as a consequence thereof. Now, for all that I just made fun of Zemo, let me just go ahead and say that what happens with Tony Stark at the end makes perfect sense and is awesome. I, I buy it completely. Remember... Probably hasn't been sleeping well for a while. Every scene he see, he's in, he looks worse and worse and worse. He is in a bad state mentally. He is in a bad state emotionally. He's just had to fight some of his friends. He's not even sure if Rhodey's going to be alive. Well, 
Okay, yes, he is sure is going to be alive. Uh, uh, functional? Fully functional? He's paralyzed, okay? All of this crap. All of this crap. He is in a very bad headspace. Now, that's important. And I, I've heard some people make fun of the final fight of this film. And I disagree completely. With, with one exception. Because it makes perfect sense that Tony would go completely off the hinges here. He effectively actually goes crazy. Not in the generic, oh, you're crazy. No, he goes crazy. Crazed. Berserker at the end of this. And that makes sense because he is now watching his parents, who he loves and never had closure with. He does eventually get it. But he, he never had closure with them. And he gets to watch them be murdered by a man who's standing right over there. I remember all of them. Which, actually, there's some conflicting uh, reports on exactly what that's supposed to mean, but let's move on from that. <laughs> of course Tony just goes crazed. I'm pretty sure most of us would, too. I've been under less duress than he has, and I have done stupider things in those moments of duress. I call it in the moment. I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before. It's not really a defense, more of an understanding. And you'll notice that when he is fighting Cap... It's First of all, it's a much better fight scene than the airport scene. It's probably the best... Well, there's no problem. In my opinion, it's the best fight scene in the entire film. It's the one that really works. Because, first of all, the two... It, it really is Iron Man versus Captain America, and they're not holding back. Second, with one notable syllable exception, the actual editing and film work on it's very good. They do a lot of long shots. Some of it's in slow-mo. But they do a lot of long shots without edits, so we can really see what's going on, which is excellent. I wish they'd done even more of that, but we'll have to save that for Black Panther. Third point. The music, which usually during these scenes is dun 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 very happy and exciting, and happy's the wrong word. Uplifting? Uh, heroic? There we go. You know, there's the action music. The music that plays during this section is actually in lower key. Or lesser key, or minor key, I forget the terminology, but it's what you usually play for sad scenes. It's still got the basic pace of an action song, but it is presented as if it is a sorrowful action song, which makes sense. This, of course, leads to Zemo. Now, this is, the, like I said, as much as his plan is ridiculous, I like the character, and I think the actor sells it, because he is collateral damage. He literally is collateral damage for them saving the world, and they did! Save the world, Sokovia. That was Ultron. That was that giant frickin' meteor. That would have been an extinction-level event, and he'd be super dead if not for them saving him. Which goes back to my earlier point. But you can see why he is so injured by this, why he is literally insane. Because all he can think of at this point is vengeance. This is why T'Challa, who has been on a bit of an arc throughout this whole thing, lets go of his vengeance because he starts to acknowledge and accept and realize what it's doing to those around him. It's not like he forgives him. It's just that he is seeing how much vengeance is ruining the people around him and how much that's not something he wants to be a part of. And, of course, Zemo was always planning to kill himself. Why not? Vengeance is all he had left. That gets taken from him, too. So the fight... <laughs> As a quick aside, it actually I mentioned there was one thing I don't like about the fight. It's the fact that all of a sudden Stark can just scan Captain America's fighting technique and just suddenly win. That, that actually irritates me. You'll notice that at that point Cap has lost. 
He doesn't stay down, though, because that's Captain America. Knowing that he's probably about to be killed, he still gets up like, all right, no, no. And uh, that's interesting, because it's possible that Stark was willing to kill him in that moment. But there is no doubt that Rogers was not willing to kill him in return. Rogers had him completely to rights. And he had the shield, and he brings it up, and it's very quick. But Stark, there's this really brief moment of actual fear, and he brings his hands up to cover his face because he thinks Rogers is going to kill him. But he's not. He never was. Rogers goes for the arc reactor, disabling the suit, removing Stark from the equation, and then he just leaves. That's a great scene. He even leaves the shield. Here you go. It's all yours. By the way, I haven't talked about Martin Freeman much. He plays the other Ross <laughs> um, in this film. And he does a good job with it. It's just he only has like the two scenes. He's good, though. He's good. It's Martin Freeman. Of course he's good. I'll talk more about him in Black Panther. I was really glad to see him come back in Black Panther, though. That was awesome. Anyways, the final message that Rogers leaves for Stark is nice. Because, it, it, obviously, it's a, nice, it's a nice denouement, but it's also a nice sign of how the MCU Phase 3 is going to go. While some of these films are kind of by themselves, most of them will end in a way like this, where it sets up something else, where it leads into something else, and that's awesome. Because it doesn't end with a the end, it ends with a, okay, everything's changed, now what, kind of a feel. There it is. Sorry, I needed to look up something really quick because I forgot to look it up really quick. That's what I thought. And of course, this also leads to um, T'Challa, who of course is... He's in a unique position because, again, he's not just Black Panther. He's king. Or at least, as we'll find out, he's going to be confirmed as king. But that's relevant because he has political power in addition to personal power in a way that most of the others don't. So when they need some place to hide, to lay low, that's where they take Bucky. And they try to fix this problem, right? And make sure that nobody could ever do that to him again. Which makes perfect sense. Just cool little stuff there. I just wanted to comment on that briefly. But the last thing I wanted to comment on is this. Obviously, it's not this type of phone. But that last bit with the phone. I want you to do me a favor and remember that. Because that's going to come up later. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one. Part one of like ten. This is, this is going to be a hell of a project for me. Oh, I'll see you next time, guys.